Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and Part 2 of our interview with Louis Gallo and the Ulysses S. Grant Memoirs. Louis was chased out by a tornado at the end of our Part 1, and this is the continuation, Part 2, of Ulysses S. Grant, His Memoirs Revealed, an interview with Louis Gallo. Describe Grant's life after he left the White House. What were some of the milestones and highlights of his life after he left? Yeah, certainly. So his life after the presidency was kind of unprecedented at the time. Uh, he was actually the first president, either sitting or you know former president, to uh, travel the world. After he left the White House, uh, you know Rutherford B. Hayes is elected to the presidency. Uh, Grant decides that him and his wife and actually his son are going to go on just a little vacation of sorts, and that's how that was the plan originally was just to go on a vacation, travel the world see as many sites as they possibly could. Well, that trip morphed into a type of diplomatic world tour, which was the first of its kind, like I said, for any, for any president. You know, he starts out, like I said, it's, it's essentially as soon as he leaves the White House, he starts on this tour. They, they leave, you know, they leave uh, the East Coast and they, they arrive in uh, Great Britain. And he's welcome. He's well received when he reaches Britain. Uh, the the royal family welcomes him, and he also is um, uh, accepted by just the common folk because they see they kind of see Grant as as someone they can look up to because he had a humble beginnings but was able to reach you know the peak right. He he, he obtained the highest office in the country, and so there was there was something endearing about that to the to the British people. Um, and so he gave a few speeches uh, to the to the common folk. Um, then he also he met with the Queen, uh, which was really interesting. There, there are some um, good accounts of, of, of that uh, encounter. You have Julie, his wife Julia had her own memoirs that she wrote. And she talks about the, that, that visit, which was interesting. Um, 
the queen liked him. You know, he's he's a he's a good guy to her. Uh, she she thought he was a little rough around the edges, as expected. You know, because he's he's really a, a rough and rugged westerner at the time. So I can understand why while she why she saw that in him. But also while he was there, um, he got to see he got to visit with his daughter Nellie, who had married uh, an Englishman and had moved over there. And so that was a really big event for them. So after he meets with the queen, uh, they, they continue. They go to, they go to France. He, Grant wasn't a big fan of uh, Paris. He, he, he said that he, he was not impressed, which I can understand uh, knowing uh, who Grant was. Everybody's trying uh, to kiss him on both cheeks. Yeah, yeah that, was, that wasn't his uh, style, I don't yeah. think. Um, but after that, he, he, you know, he, he keeps going back and forth between Britain and France. And then uh, he travels to uh, Italy. He actually meets with the Pope, which is really interesting. Then after that, or I think it was soon after, or it might have been before, but he met with uh, Bismarck, hmm. which the Auto German Chancellor. Yeah. yeah. He was very impressed with Bismarck. And, and what year was have, this? Uh, so this would have been, like I said, right after his presidency. So uh, I, I believe the tour was from, this would have been uh, 70, 78 to 80. I believe. And what was brewing in politics in Europe and in America? And how important was this tour? How did it become a diplomatic tour? You know, when Grant leaves the presidency, uh, it's it's kind of the end of Reconstruction for America. Hayes comes in and all these other Southern politicians kind of get into office and it kind of derails Grant's Reconstruction policies. And so it's a, it's a big shift for, for America. And, you know, and with what's going on in, in Europe, you know, you have all of these these big royal families who are still in charge. And then you have Bismarck, who is obviously who's taken over control over uh, in, in Germany. Grant really was like I said, it was the first time a president had ever had the chance to do this. And so this was kind of his. This was the first impression of sorts uh, for him and for uh not just for Americans, but for the, for the government, for the country itself, right? He's he's kind of introducing America to the rest of the world, essentially, is what's happening. Um, and it's so it's even though it's it, it does like I said, it didn't seem like it was going to be that important at first. It definitely morphs into something way bigger than what it was. Um, and so when he's meeting with Bismarck, you know, you know they're both they're both military men, um, and so immediately they start talking about you know the war. Uh, the Civil War, because Bismarck was very interested in the Civil War. And Grant, you know, they had a really good discussion. Uh, Bismarck, you know, he, he tried to say that, you know, oh, yeah, you were trying to preserve your country. We understand that. And he goes, yes, yeah, so well, I was trying to preserve the country, but also it was about ending slavery. So he was kind of reinforcing that idea. Um, so it's just a really, it's, it's really interesting to read the accounts of their meeting, you know, because what I remember of it is, you know, Grant, he's invited. And so he shows up to uh, Bismarck's place. Uh, he just walks up to the door and knocks on it. <laughs> and they greet him and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm here to see Bismarck. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because he's not, he, he's not full of pomp. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not very formal kind of guy. And so it's just kind of informal little meeting. And so th those two really hit it off, which is really interesting to me. Um, and then from there, you know, he keeps traveling. Uh, he actually goes uh, to Egypt he sees some of the ruins in Egypt, and we have some really cool pictures in our uh, collection uh, about Grant and uh, while he's in in Egypt. You know, <laughs> you can see he's he, he's. I'm sure he enjoyed it, but 
you could tell the sun was just beating down on him because he, he's got his head covered and he's kind of slouched over and he's kind of he has the look of like get me out of this place <laughs> you know um, and from there uh, he travels into Asia um, he, he, he sees the Holy Land um, and at that point actually uh, I believe his his eldest son Fred joins them and so it's him his wife uh, his son Jesse and his eldest son Fred so from Egypt to the Holy Land yeah and- uh, yeah, or at least when he gets into Asia, Fred's with him. Um, and at that point, Grant actually started keeping like a little journal of sorts. And we have it. Um, it's published in, in the papers of Ulysses S. Grant, which is, you know, the 32 volumes that the Grant Association uh, published over a 40-year span. But we, we added uh, the transcription and some scholarly notes uh, surrounding that journal. So it's a really interesting little a uh, little uh, account from Grant, you know, personal account from Grant. How, how, a, quick, a quick segue how would people find that right now? What would you need to search? Yeah, of course. So uh, luckily, we actually have every volume digitized, and it's on our website. And you can access it for free. Anybody can access it. You just go you know, just type, go to Google, type in Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library, click on our website. Uh, you'll find, I think there's a little tab for researchers, and then you click on collections, and then you can, you'll, you'll find it through there. And you can every page of the published volumes is accessible. Okay, and not to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. So he's with family now. Yeah. Now you said they, they did the Middle East and they did Jerusalem. Yes. And then, was it then to Asia? Yes, from there. Okay. Now he's, so I don't know if it's uh, you know, a direct route, but because he's kind of all over the place. He's, now, now Asia, 1878 does, to 1880, that's pretty much uh, un, unvisited. Is, am I correct in saying that? We hadn't had anybody there. Had yeah, we? right. Well, I mean, for uh, as a president, you know, presidents, no, right? Um, and but yeah, so he's kind of jumping all over the place. I think he goes back to Italy at one point, and then you know, he so he's he's all over the place. It's a two year trip, and so he's taking full advantage of everything that he can see, you know. Um, and like I said, that journal that he has that he kept was really it's really detailed and really interesting. You get some really good insights into to what he saw and to what he what he liked and what he thought was kind of kind of dull. Um, I don't think I don't think he was too impressed with the Great Wall, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was something in Asia he just wasn't he wasn't thrilled about. But um, it's just again, it's just really interesting. He goes through India uh, into China, and then actually when he's in Asia, it gets really interesting. He does some um, uh, he handles some talks between uh, the Chinese and, and the Japanese. Um, there's this dispute over the uh, the Roku Islands, I believe that's how you say it. Um, the, the China Islands. Um, I think I want to say. I don't want to get this wrong. I want to say maybe uh, Okinawa is a part of that that island chain. I'm not sure, uh, but you get the general area. Yeah. Um, but he actually, like I said, he mediated the talks between these two between the two countries to try to settle the dispute over the island. Um, which again, this is unprecedented for the time and even for today for a president to be doing this. Unfortunately, I, I don't. The, the talks kind of fell through uh, afterwards. You know, after he left and everything, but. Um, but still, the significance of uh, of an American president's going president going and, and doing some diplomacy overseas in the eighteen seventies is really really uh, important. I think. Yeah, they, um, they they must have been very interested to know uh, to get the viewpoint uh, from a, someone who had been president of the United States, which was pretty much looked at as an upstart. Yes. And, and what well, is the, what is this new system of 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 a democratic republic you're working with. How's that working out for you? you know? yeah. 
Yeah, most certainly. Um, the Japanese, especially, they really admired Grant, um, and Grant was impressed with Japan. Um, I think part of the reason why he was impressed with Japan was because they, it, it was, it had, uh, it was, it had some Western uh, influence. Some, some, you know, they there was a lot of industry there. Um, the, in Grant's eyes, they were quote unquote civilized, you know, um, and so I think there was a lot of respect between Grant and between the Japanese, and you can still see it today. There, there's a huge interest. And Ulysses S. Grant in Japan. Huh. Um, we we actually get, um, yeah, we get reference questions from people in Japan. We actually had a researcher um, who came from Japan to do research here, so it's really interesting. And there are there are some interesting, um, there are even some biographies on Grant in, uh, written in Japanese, and a lot of them are kind of, I would definitely call them fictitious. Um, uh, you know, they're kind of glorified stuff, but it, they're just it's it's just really uh, intriguing to read. Uh, their take on on who Grant was and how they perceive him, you know. Um, but from there, you know, the, after the two years being on the trip for two years, Grant then returns back to America. They they go across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they arrive in San Francisco again to great fanfare. Um, you know, uh, Grant. You know, he actually had, like I said before, he had spent time on the West Coast, and so he was familiar with that place. And then they kind of, you know, they they traveled to the continental United States. They went to Nevada and places like that. Uh, I don't. Yeah, Grant. They 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 go down. They went down into a, a mine, a silver mine, I believe, at one point too. And Julia went with him, which was a really funny story because you know they get to it and Grant says, "Ah, oh, no, I don't think she wants to go down there with us." And Julia says, "No, no, 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 I'm going down in that mine with you." And we have this really cool picture of her and him after they <laughs> after they came out of the mine. And she's, you know, she's holding her little lantern and she's in this big, heavy, dirty coat. And she doesn't look too thrilled. But, you could, you know, knowing Julia, I can understand why she was adamant about going down. Because she didn't want to be left out. She was, she was a very strong-minded woman, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, so after that, he comes back. Um, they're done with the tour. Uh, they kind of settle down at that point, you know, because, you know, going on a world tour for two years in the 1870s, Pretty exhausting. Oh, I would, that, I it sounds like that would be very exhausting. Yeah. And did um, they settle in upstate New York? Was that where they yeah, went? Yeah, I believe at that point they're living in New York City. After okay. That. And you know, and so Grant um, himself, you know, he he's trying to settle down, but he's also still trying to make a living. Um, and so he he invests uh, his money. Um, I think he invests in some silver mines, maybe in some railroad companies, things like that. Um, and then at that point, uh, his son, um, Buck actually started a, a firm with a man named Ferdinand Ward. So it's a, it a business firm called Grant and Ward, right? Now, Ferdinand Ward at the time, he was considered, I think his nickname was the Young Napoleon of Finance. So he was well-respected. Um, he, he made people a lot of money, right? They, he was trusted, but that was all a facade. <laughs> he was actually a crook. He had essentially set up what we would consider a Ponzi scheme at the time. So basically, he was he was using the same collateral for multiple loans, and the same guy that went down what was it seven eight years ago? Um, yeah, uh, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, Bernie yeah. Madoff. Same same guy, right? Yeah. Um, and so Grant Grant and his son are completely unaware of this, and everything's fine, right? Everything everything works in that scheme as long as the the, the investments are paying off. But once they stop paying off, then everything falls apart. Mm. And so in May of eighteen eighty four. Everything came crashing down. Oh, wow. Grant Ward went under, um, which actually caused a little bit of a panic 
on Wall Street. Um, yeah. Grant, Grant had everything invested into this firm. So 1873 so, was a depression, right? So if yeah, this the, happened in 1874, that would have just tanked it. Well, this is 1884. 1884. Okay, sorry. Yeah, um, but still, it, it was it was enough to where he was completely bankrupt. Um, I think he had maybe eighty dollars to his name, um, and so this is right. This is a former president, right? So this is something that's this is a big deal. Um, so Grant, you know, even though he's bankrupt, he, he has a lot of wealthy friends, and so they help him. I think uh, one of the Vanderbilts gives him a loan to help him trying to keep his head above water. <clears throat> And so at that point, Grant really needs to find a way to get some income, some sort of income um, for himself and for his family. And, you know, for the past, you know, leading, you know probably during his presidency up to that point, he was uh, there were multiple people coming to him asking if he would write his story about you know, his life story. And he always dismissed it. He always said, oh, no, that, I, I'm not a good writer. You know, they don't want to hear my story. It's been written about plenty. They don't want to hear me. Right. Well, once he's bankrupt, bankrupt, he decides, well, maybe I should try to do this, right? And so um, he reaches out to uh, Century Magazine. Uh, Century Magazine at the time, they were doing a, uh, a series called uh, the Battle of Leaders series. So essentially they would get uh, veterans of the Civil War, you know, high commanders to write their little, write a little article about their experience at a certain battle, and then they would publish it. And so Greg decided, well, maybe this is, you know, this is a way to get some money. And so uh, he agreed, uh, I think he agreed to write four articles for about, I think, $500 a piece. So it's not much, but, you know, it's something. Uh, so he starts writing them. Uh, I, I think the first one he did was on the Battle of Shiloh. And he submits his draft to, to the editors. And they all look at it and they realize that this is not a very good article. It, it, re it read like a, like a battle report. It was very dry, no personal details, nothing, right? And so they, they selected one of the, the lower editors. They said, hey, why don't you go talk to him? See if you can kind of you know, get him on the right track and see if you can find a way for him to, to kind of pump it up a little bit. You know? And the, uh, the editor actually goes and speaks to him. And he says, tell me about the battle. Right? There's, it's just one-on-one. -on -one. He says, tell me about the battle. And so Grant talks to him about this. And during the conversation, this editor realizes that Grant is a fantastic storyteller. Right. He's been he's been telling these stories for 20 years. Right. And in one on one conversations, he's, he's great at it. And so the editor stops and he says that what you just told me is fantastic. Write an article like that. Tell tell me your side. Right. Tell me the personal details. We want to hear the, the personal side. Forget the, the casualty figures and the movement, troop movements and order of battle. Forget, Give us the, your personal take on this stuff. And it was kind of a light bulb moment for Grant, right? He realizes, oh, so, okay, so this is, this is what they want to hear. And so he, re, he rewrites it, and it's fantastic from there, right? So during, during this, this is in the summer of 1884, he's, he's writing these articles. Um, everything's going well until July. Um, he's at Long Branch, New Jersey with his wife. Um, and he picks up a, a peach, and he takes a bite of this peach, and he feels this immense, terrible pain in his throat. And, you know, he doesn't think anything of anything. Eh, maybe, maybe it was a bug in the fruit. Maybe uh, he took a part of the pit, and it scratched his throat. Didn't think anything of it, right? Julia tells him, well, you should go see the doctor. You should go see the doctor. And like a typical husband, he says, ah, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, stubborn man as he is. 
Well, over time, after a couple months, the pain doesn't go away and it starts to hurt worse. And so he finally goes and sees a doctor. And the doctor looks at it and he, he can't confirm that it's cancer, but they're pretty sure it's, it's cancer. And so they sent him some, to some other throat specialists, uh, leading throat specialists at the time. But during this time, Grant, has, he, he's, moved, he's moved past writing articles and he's actually decided that maybe he should write his memoir. And so he starts writing his personal memoirs. Well, because he had a, a decent um, relationship with Century Magazine, he figured, well, maybe I can I get a publishing deal through them. And so they offer him a terrible deal. It was a terrible contract. But during this process, Mark Twain hears about this. Now, Mark Twain is one of Grant's closest friends, believe it or not, which is it's a great friendship that, you know, that most people don't really don't realize because you know, they're, 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 they're essentially polar opposites you know, on the surface, right? You think of Twain, who's like the first, essentially the first humorist uh, in America, right? He's a, he's, he's a comedic genius, so he's very loose and funny. And then you have Grant, you know, the stoic, stone-faced general, right? So you wouldn't think they would be friends, but they were close friends. Grant thought Twain was one of the funniest people. And those little anecdotes are fantastic between those two. Um, Twain actually wrote about it, um, wrote about uh, his relationship with Grant in his own autobiography, which is really great to read. I highly recommend it. But anyway, so so Twain hears about this this deal that um, Century Magazine has given Grant, and so he goes and he sits down with Grant, and Grant has the contract, Century contract in his hand. He's about to sign it, and Twain says, "Let me see that," and he looks at it, and he goes, "Oh, this is terrible. This is something that they that a first time author." would get a deal the first time author would get he goes forget that he says i have a publishing company charles l webster and company which is his uh i think it's his cousins charles l webster he goes i'll give you a much better deal and you'll you and your family will will like what we have the off what that what we have to offer and so grant says well let me think about it you know because grant he doesn't want to you know, he felt that century did you know helped him out when he needed it he, he didn't want to turn his back on him but after looking at the Mark Twain offer, he realized, no, I've, I've got to go with that one. And so he's, he signs a deal with Mark Twain. And so for the next uh, seven months or so, because that was in December, I believe, November, December, for the next uh, seven months, Grant just goes at writing his memoirs. Every day of his life, he's writing, 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 at an incredible rate as well. Now, it's not just all from memory, right? He has, he has people with him. Um, he has access to the government records, and you know, because at the time they're 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 started they started uh, to publish the official records of the War of the Rebellion. Um, it hadn't been completed, but there were some volumes, I believe, and so he had access to those ones and the unpublished uh, documents um, to you know kind of jog his memory and make sure he got all the details right. But during this time is when he realizes that he in fact has throat and mouth cancer, and it's advanced and it's not looking good for him. And so he's dying while he's writing his memoirs. And so there are, there are moments during early 1885 where they, they're afraid that he's going to die. You know, and, the, and the newspapers are covering all, every little detail that they possibly can. And so one, one headline you'll see, oh, oh, he's on his deathbed. This is it for Grant. And then he makes it out of it, you know, coughs up some blood, just gets to writing again. And so he just kept writing and kept writing. Um, and at this time, he's, he's in New York City. 
But when the summer comes around, he, they decide that he needs to get out of the city. You know, you have the summer heat and all the heat from the city. It just he could barely breathe as it, as it was, and so they that's when they decided to go to Mount McGregor, New York, upstate, um, in the countryside. So you know, fresh air, he could breathe and feel better while he's writing. Um, and so he kept writing until July. I, I believe I think it was either July nineteenth or July twentieth is when he officially stopped writing uh, his memoirs. And he said he he did all he could do at that point. He actually dies a few days later. So it was really keeping him going. Um, it's a really inspiring story when you when you think about it. Um, it, it it's really his last battle um, that he fights. And, and knowing Grant, you know, he like he said, once he started doing something, he did not stop right until the, until it was done. And that's what and that was true with his writing of the memoirs. Um, so he actually never saw it published because he passed away well before it could be put in print. Now you've read um, you've read probably every word of his memoirs. Is that correct? And uh, yeah, a couple times. <laughs> what do you think were the most moving moments uh, in that that he was writing yeah. about? Yeah. So, in my opinion, I think Grant is just a fantastic storyteller, and you can see that in his writings, uh, in his memoirs. Um, the way he details his early life is really interesting. His his description of the Civil War obviously is fantastic. Um, invaluable for historians and for you know, anybody interested in studying Grant. Um, but for me personally, um, you know, after, you know, well, let me back up here. We, we came out with an annotated edition of his personal memoirs uh, in 2017. And so that's what I did when I, when I was first hired to work here. Uh, I, the project that I started with was uh, working on his memoirs. And so for, you know, I worked on the project for three years and in that time, you know, I'm getting to know him even more, right? Because you're reading his words and you're really going through and, uh, with a comb and trying to you know, break it down and unpack everything that he's talking about. And so you start to really get to know the man and get to understand his story. But there's one point in the, in the process, I, I remember, uh, near the end where uh, he was talking about the Overland campaign. And he was talking about the death of uh, General Sed Sedgwick, who was one of his close friends. Uh, the story goes, uh, Cedric was on his horse. Um, you know, the Confederates are, you know, the, the, they can see them. They can see the Confederates, and his men tell him, you know, General, get down, get down from the horse. They're going to shoot. You know, they'll see that you're a general, and they'll they'll shoot you. And he says, Ah, they couldn't hit the broadside of an elephant. And as soon as he said that, he got shot and killed. And Grant's description of how that impacted him really, that really affected me. Um, I think just because I had been working on the project for so long at that point, that that was the kind of moment where I re it kind of humanized everything for me. It, it's one thing to just read about you know casualty numbers and, and like I said the order of battle and stuff. You're, it, it's kind of it, it's kind of you're kind of numb to that stuff. But once you read detailed personal accounts like that, it really it really gets to you. It really it, that was the kind of moment for me where I realized, wow, this is this war was not, I mean, obviously war is terrible, but that one especially was just, just, uh, it was so brutal and, and tough and tough for the men too. You know what I mean? Um, and, to, and to read how, how that affected Grant was really, was really tough. Um, so I, and in that I, I gained a, an appreciation for, for what I was studying and, and how, it's, how significant it is to us today and how significant it was to them then, you know.
Um, so that was kind of a, a big a big moment for me, I guess. But like I said, Grant was a fantastic storyteller. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Uh, you know, you can read his his military orders, and you know they're they're concise and they're clear and they're, all that stuff. But when you read his personal accounts, you really get to understand. You, you can really get inside of his head and understand who he was. How did he um, feel about Julia and his children? Were there any stories uh, about that relationship with family that really stand out for you? That that show Grant as the kind of man he was. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so with Julia in particular, I, I think I think the way he talks about her in the memoirs is really it's really nice. So again, going back to his storytelling ability, the way he sets up his his relationship with Julia is is very it's it's really really uh, impressive. I think. So you know he. In the memoirs, he talks about his early life from the beginning, his time at West Point, and then when he meets Julia. And he has this ability to set up a story. And so, you know, he, he introduces her, you know, and he's, oh, yeah, I met this, this, this young woman, and I got to know her, and, you know, and then I go off to fight the Mexican-American War, and I'm writing back and forth with her, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then, he, and then it gets to the point where he comes back from the war, and then he marries her. And so he does a fantastic job setting up that that storyline, right? Um, now I, I, you can contrast that with someone like uh, Sherman, for example. Sherman, who had his own person, he wrote his own memoirs. When Sherman talks about his wife and his memoirs, he doesn't introduce her until I think like chapter four, and it's in passing. He's just like at the start of chapter four. He's like, yeah, then I got married. And so what? And he he was he wanted to talk about who was at the wedding more than. Than, than is that the actual his actual wife, but so that you know, looking at the difference between the two, it, it's it's telling, right? It shows just how close Grant was with Julia and just how much he loved her, and that, that's what I've learned is that, and I, I didn't realize this when I first started working here was just how much of a family man he actually was. Um, he had he was very fond of his wife. I mean, you can see that in the early uh, in volume one of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, we have. Uh, his correspondence to her during the Mexican-American War. And it's just, they're the most romantic letters you could possibly think of. And again, when, that was so surprising to me, because in my head, I see Ulysses S. Grant, again, as the stoic, stern, stone-faced general, right? You don't think of him as a romantic type, a hopeless romantic, but he, he really was. Um, and he loved his children, most certainly. Um, you can see that in, just, uh, in his letters, to Julia when he's out on the West Coast, you know, because he's away from both uh, Julia and his eldest son, Fred. And at that time, Ju when he leaves, Julia has their second son. And so he didn't see his second son until he was two years old. And you can, you can imagine, right, just how, how much that would affect you. But again, you can just see, see the, the relationship that they, that they had together. And it was really, I don't know, it's just, again, it's just something that was just so surprising to me to see how much affection he had. And you can, yeah. I was going to say, you can see that too. Um, uh, I believe Jesse actually wrote his own little recollections of his father after, I think, in the, uh, in the 1900s. Um, and so he details his relationship with his dad. And, and I think he said, he mentioned something about how Grant never raised his voice to him. He was always caring and loving to him. And so, I mean, obviously he's not, he's not going to talk bad about his father, but it, again, it's just, it's just a, it reveals a side of Grant that most people don't know about. Tell us about the mysteries that surround Grant and his life. Yeah. So I was thinking about this because obviously this is the, the podcast is 
seems to me is histories on, and mysteries. Right, of course. So I, I was thinking about this. Um, I think the biggest mystery to me would be, you know, broadly speaking, would be his uh, his early life, right? So before he became this national figure, this this prominent Civil War general, he really was a nobody before the Civil War, right? I think I told you in the first part that he, you know he was struggling before the war. He was selling firewood on the streets. He wasn't a, he was a nobody, and so they, the family didn't really keep records the way that they did after that, right? Because why would you, right? He's just who is he? So there, I think the lack of uh, correspondence and documentation of his early life is really a big mystery. So like I, you know I mentioned his time in the Mexican American War. How in the first volume of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. We have his side of the correspondence. We don't have Julia's side of the correspondence. And so that's a huge gap in the literature. So you have to really kind of guess what they're, what she was saying to him when, by reading his letters to her, right? So he'll say, oh, yeah, you said such and such and such and such. And you kind of have to guess, I don't know what he's talking about. So, you know, again, it's just a hole there. What happened um, to those letters from Julia? I don't believe he really talks about talks about it too much. Um, was that catch of letters ever found? I guess is what I'm asking. Um, I don't think so. Uh, no, I would say no. So if, they, no, if they're sitting have. in a trunk somewhere, they'd be definitely worth some. Uh, I would say so. Jingle, right? My guess, though, is that you know he's fighting in the Mexican American War at this time, and he's all over the place. He starts fighting in the north, um, and then he moves into Mexico City to fight under Winfield Scott. And so with all that movement going around, I, I just couldn't imagine him having the time or even the, the capability to maintain all those, those letters. But he does talk about something, and I pulled up this quote here, and I want to read it. It's kind of a long quote, so hang with me here. Um, but I'm going to set it up for you. So after he graduates um, from West Point, he moves to St. Louis, and he's stationed at Jefferson Barracks, which is where he meets Julia. Well, during that time, he actually kept a journal while he was at West Point. Or I'm sorry, at Jefferson Barracks, and this is, and he he talks about this journal in his memoirs, and so I'm going to read you the quote and what he says. He says, "I quote, I reviewed my West Point course of mathematics during the seven months at Jefferson Barracks and read many valuable historical works, besides an occasional novel. To help my memory, I kept a book in which I would write up from time to time my recollections of all I had to read since last posting it. When the regiment was ordered away." I, being absent at the time, my effects were packed up by Lieutenant Hazlitt of the 4th Infantry and taken along. I never saw my journal after, nor did I ever keep another, except for a portion of the time while traveling abroad, which is that one I told you about. Often since, a fear has crossed my mind lest that that book might turn up yet and fall into the hands of some malicious person who would publish it. I know its appearance would cause me as much heartburning as my time when I was the stories of when I was a child. <laughs> so there could be a journal out there <laughs> that he kept during his time at Jefferson Barracks that we don't know about Whoa. because we don't have it here at the Grant Library, and we like to say that we have every known document related to Grant that ever existed, um, or that that still exists, I should say. Um, and so to me that. If that isn't a mystery, I'm not sure what is, that journal. <laughs> and the way he talks about it, I can only imagine what he wrote. <laughs> imagine that turning up at a flea market. Uh, if it's at a flea market, you might get a good price. But if it's at an auction, I don't know if you're going to afford it. So that's a really big mystery, I think. Um, I, I would love 
I would love it if that thing was found, but who knows, you know, if it will ever be found. The last mystery, though, that I, that I want to talk about real quick is uh, William Jones. I think I might have talked about this on the first part. Um, William Jones was a slave that Grant owned for a year. So when he married Julia, Julia's family, they were slave owners. And so during this period before the Civil War, Grant, as I said, Grant was struggling. And he was trying to make some sort of living through farming. And so his father-in-law, we think, either gave him William Jones or sold him to Grant. Um, we're not really sure what, which, what happened. But either way, he, he acquired this man. And so for a year, him and William Jones and some other African-American slaves that I think he had uh, hired – I think he, I don't know, if they, they might have been freedmen, I'm not really sure. It's, it, the details are kind of, kind of blurry of the story. But um, him, William Jones, and these four other men actually did, they farmed together. They, so he, they helped Grant with the farming process. And, and there are, are accounts that Grant actually works alongside them. And so he, he really gets to know these men, especially William Jones. Well, after a year, he gives Jones his freedom. Now, this is the mystery for, for historians, is why he gave Jones his freedom, right? He's at, like I said, he's at a time where he's struggling financially. So it wouldn't make sense for him to just free him, right? He could have sold him, right? He could have kept using him to, to, to make money somehow. But for some reason, he sells, or I'm sorry, he frees him. And, we, you know, we have the, uh, the, the manumission document. You know, or it's it's the legal document that he he signed. You know, I Ulysses S. Grant free so and so and so and so. But he never gives a reason as to why he freed Jones. And so that's really, I think, a big mystery um, is his motivation for freeing Jones. Um, to the casual listener, they would say, you know, at that point maybe he felt a revulsion towards slavery as a whole, and right. that was the reason he did. Yeah. So. From what I've studied, and, I, and we might have touched on this in the first part, from what I've studied, there was an evolution uh, for Grant on his views on slavery. And, you know, in his early life, he said he was never an abolitionist. But then as he creeped closer and closer to the Civil War, his views start to change. And I think, really, uh, they change because of his father-in-law. There are accounts of, dis of discussions that he had with uh, Frederick Dent uh, about slavery. You know, Frederick Dent is a colonel. He, a colonel in quotes, meaning he's a, a plantation owner who's very adamant about the institution of slavery. And Grant comes from an abolitionist family. And so he's, he's having these back and forth discussions. And I think he starts to understand just how impactful slavery is on the country. Um, and there's one letter uh, once the war breaks out where Grant is writing to Frederick Dent telling him that this war will be the doom of slavery. So this will be the end of slavery. And so it, it, he understood from the get-go just how much of a, how impactful slavery was, not only on, on keeping the country, you know, getting rid of it, not on keeping how, how it would keep the country together, but he understood how, I think he started to realize just how evil the institution was. But, because he, he was finally witnessing it, right? When he was a kid, he wasn't involved. He wasn't around slaves. He, I mean, he was in Ohio, so that he might have seen the occasional uh, – uh, runaway, but he, he it didn't really impact him until he marries Julia. Then it's directly affecting him. He's, and I think that's when he starts to realize just how terrible of an institution it, it is. Now, Grant yeah. and Lincoln were both Republican presidents, is that correct? Yes. 
And what was the situation politically from the time uh, Grant entered office as a president uh, until around 1900 between the two parties? Which parties were were which which parties were honestly trying to promote Reconstruction, and which party was trying to fight against it? Yeah. So uh, the Republicans uh, were most certainly uh, the party that were tr- that was trying to maintain uh, Reconstruction um, and trying to make sure you know that that obviously slavery would be done with and that there would be some sort of equality between the races. Um, the Democrats were staunchly opposed to that. I don't think you see that shift until later, um, until the 1900s. But during the 1800s, the Republican Party really takes up the mantle of being the party of uh, equality. Well, throughout even throughout the 1900s, wasn't the, wasn't the South uh, run by uh, Democrats? Who, yes, yeah. who were not in favor of integration? Yeah, yeah. You you don't really you don't really see a switch a, a major switch until later on in the 1900s. But yeah, for 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 the most part, it's it's the Republican Party um, as uh, yeah, like you're saying, the Democrats are in control of the South, um, and they're really the, the Democratic Party is the one that kind of enforces those Jim Crow laws um, after Reconstruction ends and. When, well, there's there's debate on when Reconstruction officially ends, but, but you know, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I I am still amazed today at how the Republicans picked up a reputation as being such racist. When actually, throughout this whole time, from Lincoln to today, uh, the Republicans have been fighting for equality for the blacks, including the Civil Rights Act of 1968, I believe it was. Or when the when it was the Republicans who ended up passing that in Congress and in Senate, um, so it's it's a tough conversation just because um, pol- the political parties in name are always the same, but their their platforms most certainly shift, and that goes for both of them. You you can still see that today. I mean, they're arguing. I've heard I heard Republicans today talk about how you know JFK was alive today, he'd be a Republican. I've heard and so. That. It's really it's really tough to nail down. Uh, uh, just what what each party stands for over such a long period of time, just because there's so much shifting going on, right? Um, for example, you've got Teddy Roosevelt, um, who really kind of helps to to get the progressive movement going, right? right? Yeah, yeah. But today, Republicans would not see themselves as quote unquote progressive. So it, it's a, it's a really tough. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a, a fluid. A fluid thing that's occurring, and it's really tough to nail it down over such a long period of time. Yeah, that's Roosevelt's about, and Teddy Roosevelt was an interesting guy. There's a lot of stories oh, there. Oh, talk about God. a character. Tell us about Grant's tomb and the whole story surrounding that. Yeah, I can give you some details about his tomb. So when Grant passes away, uh, and he, well, let me back up. Before Grant passes away, there's a discussion on where he was going to be buried, right? Um, he wanted to be buried at West Point initially. But the policy at the time forbid his wife from being buried alongside him. And so he, he decided to just leave it up to her as to where his body would be. Um, and so I, I, the family actually chose Riverside Park in New York City. You know, they had, they had lived there for a while and they had a, a strong connection to the city. And so she felt that that would be an appropriate place for him to be. Now, initially, um, he was interred in a small temporary tomb um, until a better one could, could be constructed. And so after years of deliberation and, and fundraising, his, his final tomb, which is a grand mausoleum in Riverside Park, 
uh, was officially dedicated on his what would have been his 75th birthday on um, April 27, 1897. Um, and so it, it's a long and involved story on how that that tomb finally came about. Um, you know, because there's there was um, competition over the design. There was a struggle to raise the money. Uh, there there was a public public some of the public opinions were against Grant being in, in New York City. Some people felt that he should have been buried in D.C. It was just a, a, a big ordeal. Um, but like I said, eventually it, it ends up in a Riverside Park in New York City. Um, but perhaps the most um, interesting part of the story of his, of his death, I think, um, was the, the funeral procession that they had in New York City. So it was a seven-mile-long funeral procession up Manhattan Island. It was one of the longest funeral processions in the most in American history, and one of the largest. Um, it's hard to really tell how exactly how many people were there. Uh, my guess is probably a million people there if you put a number on it. Um, but what's what's really interesting is that you know during this during this procession, people are taking all kinds of photographs, right? Because this is you know the hot new technology, and people want to capture this moment, right? Well, there was a company that decided to to gather all of those photographs and to publish them into book form and then sell that book you know, to various businesses like hotels. And if, you're, if you're waiting on a hotel room, you can thumb through the, the Grant's uh, funeral procession book, which kind of sounds morbid to us a little bit, but you can imagine how popular that would be at the time. So they, they come up with this book, and some of them, most of them are actually really big. They're large books. I'm, I'm saying, I'm talking like, three feet by two feet, like a really big book, like on a stand. That's how big this book is, right? <laughs> well, the people who took the photographs felt like they got the wrong end of the deal. And so they actually sued the company. And the company was never able to sell the book. But what's really neat is here at the Grant Library, we actually have one of the four remaining copies of this book, and we have it on display. And it's fantastic. It, like I said, the stand itself, it just screams Gilded Age. It's this, you know, just an amazing look, uh, artifact, and it's it's huge. Now, we don't like to touch it. We actually have it encased because, it, you know, the it's so big and the binding's falling apart and everything. But what we actually did is we digitized every photograph that we could in the book, and we put it on an interactive next to the book in the gallery. And so as a, as a visitor comes through, they can actually, quote unquote, page through the book without having to actually touch the book. And you can see all the images that are, are inside. Probably the most uh, uh, interesting image to me is there's this one shot uh, of the procession you know, coming up Manhattan, and you can see the New York City uh, skyline. And it, it looks, it's not, <laughs> it's unrecognizable to us, right? Because, you know, we think New York City, you see big skyscrapers, everything. I think the highest point in that photograph is a church steeple, just to give you an idea. And so just to see the development over you know, that time period is uh, really incredible. Um, but that's a really, really neat artifact that we like to talk about and that we like to have, like I said, on display because it's so rare. I'd like you to re remind our listeners with your name and what your responsibility is how you how you have become connected with Grant's memoirs and what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, sir. So my name is Louis Gallo. 
I am a documentary editor and slash historian here at the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library. Um, I got here because my training is specifically in documentary editing. And so as a documentary editor, I contextualize documents for readers. I, I'm not, 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 not to be confused with filmmaking. I don't make films. <laughs> I, I, I work with old historical documents. My, I guess my interest in the presidency grew out of my childhood. I had always been interested in, in the presidency and, and, and trying to wrap my head around how someone could be or could hold that, that office. You know, that's, that's such a, an intriguing uh, thing for me. Uh, before I worked here, I actually worked at uh, the President McKinley uh, National Birthplace Museum and Library in Niles, Ohio. And so I kind of got my feet wet through that. But like I said, my training is specifically in uh, documentary editing and public and applied history. And so that's what I do here. Um, to refresh you, I, I, we, we came out with an annotated edition of Grant's uh, personal memoirs back in 2017. It was published by Harvard University Press. Uh, we added over 2,000 footnotes to his memoirs, so we kind of unpacked everything that he, that he talks about. We identify every single person that he mentions, every place that no longer exists. Uh, we clarify, clarify him when he's wrong, and, or when he's vague, and we correct him when he's wrong. And that's actually been a pretty big success. You can find that book on Amazon or through Harvard Press's um, website. And, what, and what's the title of the book again? Yeah, so it's The Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, the complete annotated edition. Um, and so the, the lead editor was my boss, uh, Civil War historian John F. Marslack, who's a great man, and my other uh, co-worker and colleague, uh, David S. Nolan, who's also a very, uh, very sharp, very smart guy. Um, without those two, this project, that project wouldn't, have, wouldn't be what it is. I, I'm, I was just there just to help them, but they're really the, the driving force behind uh, the, that project. But because of the success of Grant of that edition of Grant's memoirs, um, Harvard actually asked us to do um, Sherman's next, and so that's what we're currently working on—an annotated edition of Sherman's personal memoirs, um, which hopefully won't take as long. But it's that book is just as long as Grant's memoirs, so it might take that long. So that's the major project that we have right now. Also, we have another book coming out in on uh, April fifteenth. Uh, it's a short biography of Grant. It's, it's entitled uh, Hold On with a Bulldog Grip, a short study of Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, it's, uh, it's co-authored by John F. Marzlack, David S. Nolan, myself, uh, a man named Frank J. Williams, who was a former Rhode Island, uh, former Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Um, he's also the uh, president of the Ulysses S. Grant Association. And there's an afterword uh, written by Mississippi State University President uh, Mark E. Keenum. And so it's, it's, all, it's a short little biography. Um, it's only about 130 pages long. Um, it really covers kind of the major themes surrounding Grant. So some of the things that I talked about, it covers his uh, relationship, you know, when he, him and slavery. It covers his, uh, the myth about him drink, his uh, drunkenness. Uh, his time in the war, his relationship with Lincoln, kind of this big theme. It's, so it's a, a kind of a thematic uh, uh, analysis of Grant's life. And so that's coming out, and like I said, on, on April 15th. And you can buy that through Amazon or um, it's it, uh, through the uh, University Presses of Mississippi website. And how do people get in touch with you, Louis, with questions or anything yeah, else? Yeah, of course. So um, you can find my contact information on our website. Um, I'm always up for, you know, I can, I can talk to you on the phone or you can send me an email if you have a reference question and I can help out as much as I possibly can. And the website um, again is? 
Yeah, so let me get let me pull it up real quick so I don't get it wrong. Because it's I always get, I always get the name wrong. So that the website is usgrantlibrary.org. Usgrantlibrary.org. Dot org. Um, and like I said, that's where you can find the digitized version of the volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, you can find other um, collections that we have digitized, such as photographs, uh, other things like that. And yeah, it's just a great resource for teachers, for historians, you know, both professional and amateur alike. I've got a few questions for you. Yeah. And we'll see how these we'll see how these peg out. Who would you say was his favorite general during the Civil War? So his favorite Civil War general? Um, I don't want to speak for him, but from what I've read, uh, I would say Sherman was probably his most uh, uh, vital general. Um, he was closest to Sherman. He trusted Sherman the most, and they, they really fought together for most of the war. I mean, they were together at Shiloh, and so I would definitely say Sherman. If you were to ask him today, what would he likely answer as being the turning point of the Civil War? When did it finally turn toward the Union's favor? Um, I don't think he'd have a single answer. I think he would he would have multiple answers. I think for him personally, uh, Vicksburg was a key moment, right? Because that kind of that's essentially splits up the Confederacy. But uh, capturing Chattanooga was another huge moment because Chattanooga was kind of was kind of the heart of the Confederacy at the time. You have all the supplies and railroads going through Chattanooga, and so capturing those two cities really made it. It was a turning point for him, at least. Um, uh, knowing what I know about Grant, I don't think I don't think he would have been happy until Robert E. Lee signed that surrender at Appomattox. For him, that was probably the, the turning point, obviously. But that was just knowing what I like. So what I've read about him, no, he he wouldn't be he wouldn't be happy until it was over. That'd be my guess. In in all that you have read, can you recall one of the maybe the most one of the most poignant moments for him in his life was there a moment was there a defining moment that is that viewers would say that really reveals his personality that's something i didn't know yeah um well i mean they might know about this but that that first night after shiloh i think really revealed who he was not only as a a person but as a general right most most men would have tucked their tail and ran after that first night at Shiloh because it was a debacle. They were caught off guard completely. His lines were pushed back. He lost all kinds of men, and, but he, he held true. He, he, he knew that persistence was gonna, his persistence would pay off and that he, and he understood that, that, that if he led his men correctly, that they would fight for him and for the cause that they were fighting for. Um, so I think that moment where he's he's sitting underneath that tree after the first night in Shiloh and it's pouring down rain and Sherman came and talked to him. I think that was a very a very big moment for Grant, at least as a, when it comes to him as a military man. Now, as a person, you know, just in his his personal life, uh, I think a, a defining moment for him. It, it, it's not a good moment, but that. That time when he was selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis, I think that was a, a, a big moment for him as well, because he understood that if 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 he was going to help his family and if he was going to make a better life for himself, that he needed to do something more. And, we, and, and he didn't give up on it. We might have discussed this in part one, 
Mm-hmm. But what was Grant's attitude toward the Indians? Yeah, we talked. I think we talked about it pretty extensively. Um, but but I, you know, I can kind of touch on it a little bit if you want again. Um, so Grant's, in my opinion, Grant's view of, of Native Americans at the time was pretty progressive compared to most people. Um, he saw uh, the, the natives as um, people who weren't un, who weren't civilized, but should have the opportunity to be quote unquote civilized, right? Civilized meaning that they should be able to, to farm, uh, they should be Christian, and that they and, but the most radically that they should have the right to citizenship, which was a radical idea at the time, right? Now it didn't pan out very well, but just just being able to present that idea was, I think, progressive for, for a man in his time. And one more question. When, when, you're the, when you're a general in a civil war and you're responsible for sending tens of thousands of men to their deaths, that's going to affect you in a big way. How did that, how did that affect him uh, through his memoirs, what you've learned about him? Is that sadness? Is that was that a sadness that he carried toward the end of his days? Is that something he ever covered, or was that something he kept? So um, I think broadly speaking, Grant had an ability to compartmentalize a lot of things. I think that's why he was he was able to do what he did during the war and after. Because um, you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine just how much that would weigh on you, right? Um, so I think that kind of moderated the effects, but it most certainly still affected him. And he, you can see that in his memoirs when he talks about the Battle of Cold, Cold Harbor, which was a brutal, brutal battle where thousands of his men died in a short amount of time. And he's still criticized to this day for what he did on, um, on that last assault. And he talks about that in his memoirs. He says, he said, I have always regretted that last assault at Cold, that I have always regretted that the last assault at Cold Harbor was ever made. And so you can, I mean, the, I think the casualty estimate for uh, the Union on, on J- June 3rd of that battle was around 6,000 men and about 1,500 for the Confederacy. Um, but, yeah, he talks about it in his memoirs. And, and that's in 1885, 20 years after the fact. And it was still, he still regretted it. And so even though he was able to com- compartmentalize some of those things, as you have to be if you're going to be in that position, it, it still most certainly got to him. Well, Louis, thank you so very, very, very much for your contribution today and for uh, sharing sharing the story of U.S. Grant in a way that few people can uh, oh. with, with your narrative and with your research and with your talent for, for speaking. You've been wonderful, and we want to thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's been an honor to be on this on your podcast, and it's I look forward to listening to more episodes of yours, and I, I can't thank you enough. Louie, thanks a lot, and we'll we'll be in touch. Make sure you get in touch with us when you get that book on Sherman done. Of course. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep, have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.